Before I begin, I would just like to thank Dean Moe for the invitation to preach today. This is the third time I've stood in this pulpit and preached. The first was at my grandmother's funeral nearly 17 years ago. The second was on Thanksgiving Day in 2018. So this is the first time I've preached during a regularly scheduled Sunday service. It's a rare privilege, which also means it's a great responsibility. Thank you, Amy, for the invitation. Today I'm going to focus on just a few words from the epistle. Seven words, to be exact. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. I love this line. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Is Paul discouraging knowledge when he says this? I don't think so. What is knowledge anyway? The most simplistic definition would be facts or information acquired through education or experience. I know that 2 plus 2 equals 4. I know that when a tornado siren goes off in my neighborhood, I need to take cover. That knowledge lives up here. Knowledge can be more than that. Knowledge can be advantageous in your work. I know that as a lawyer... If I include certain language in a contract, I can protect my client. I know that as a legislator, if I can persuade a few key members to support a bill, it stands a much higher chance of passing. I know that as a pitcher, if I've got a count of no balls and two strikes, I can throw a breaking ball out of the zone, and either the batter's going to swing through it for strike three, or I still have three balls left to go. All of that knowledge is effective and important. It still lives up here. Knowledge can be more than this. Knowledge can be a gift of happiness. I know that if I show my daughter a picture of our dog, Scuppers, there's a very good chance that she will break into a smile. I know that if I talk about certain scenes from the film Happy Gilmore with my son, there's a very good chance he will break into a smile. And I know that if I talk about Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey with my wife, there's a very good chance she will break into a smile. That knowledge comes from here, but it lands here. And knowledge can be more than that. It can be transformational. When we acquire knowledge, it literally rewires the synapses in our brain to create the capacity for empathy. Those neurons may be here, but that empathy is here. Knowledge can be more than that. Knowledge can be sacred. When God calls Samuel, rather than answer God, three times Samuel runs to Eli to say, here I am, you called me. What is the Bible's explanation for why Samuel went to Eli rather than answer God? In 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 7, it says, Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Samuel did not answer God because he did not yet know God. When the word of God was revealed to Samuel, he came to know God. That knowledge is holy. That lives here only. Powerful stuff. That all seems pretty good to me. But knowledge puffs up. The connotation there is not all good, is it? One reason I'm fascinated by that line in the epistle is because we don't hear a lot about knowledge in the Bible. The most famous example we have maybe is right at the beginning in Genesis. 
knowledge of the tree of good and evil. It's not knowledge of the tree of good, although that would be nice. It's knowledge of the tree of good and evil. We all know the phrase, knowledge is power. That sounds kind of ominous. Have you ever witnessed, received, or maybe even delivered a piece of mockery or a comment that strikes someone down? Without a high level of knowledge or intelligence, it's not possible. Coming to know a person means you learn not only what might make them smile, it also means you learn what might make them vulnerable. And that means you know how to hurt them. In fact, the more you know about them, the more capacity you have to hurt them. Now, I'm not going to stand up here and deliver a fire and brimstone sermon. That's just not what I'm going to do. But I don't have to, because we all know of the ways that people can use knowledge in this world to cause harm and to cause pain. Sometimes they act on it. Many times they don't. But knowledge is what gives them the power to act on it, if they so choose. Knowledge may be power, but it can also be a great burden. It enables you to see things that others may not see. That can be a wonderful gift. It can also be a great weight. You know who had a lot of knowledge? Jesus Christ. Have you ever heard of anyone speak about Christ's intelligence? I haven't. I can't think of a single time in my life where I've heard someone talk about Christ's intelligence. But I've thought a good bit about it. There are two reasons I can think of why people don't talk about Christ as a smart person. For one, it seems a bit disrespectful, bordering on sacrilegious. To discuss Christ's intelligence is to discuss his human traits. While I believe that humanizing God was one of the main purposes of Christ's life on earth, perhaps second only to the redemption, discussing his humanity is uncomfortable territory. To discuss his intelligence seems to contemplate the possibility that there may have been another alternative. Christ was God, is God, is omnipotent. How could he not be intelligent? And how could the human word intelligence begin to capture the scope of his knowledge, of his wisdom? To us, it can't. To us, as Christians, we believe so strongly in Christ's divinity and omnipotence that we don't even need to talk about his intelligence. So we don't. But that doesn't change the fact that Christ was human. And boy, was he smart. To non-Christians even, including his contemporaries who were his adversaries, his intelligence was something that they marveled at. This man spoke in parables. If you asked him what he wanted for supper, he might say, in the spring, a farmhand plants a seed. In a month, there is a sprout. In two months, there is a plant. And yet two months later, there is grain. And the person would might say, so you, you, you want bread? I don't mean to make light of it, but the point really is that the mind of Christ is beyond our understanding. The definition of omnipotence is that all knowledge that exists is in Christ's mind. He knows of our capacity, collectively and individually, for good. He knows of our capacity, collectively and individually, to fall. That includes those he loved in his own life on earth. He knew of his impending death. I think of all that, and I think, poor Jesus. What a burden. What a burden he carried for us and still carries for us. 
and what gratitude I have to him for carrying it. I mentioned a moment ago that there were two reasons I could think of why we, including even non-Christians who marvel at it, don't speak of Christ's intelligence. What is the second? What was the message of Christ's life? If you had to boil it down into one sentence, what would you say? If you had to boil it down into one word? I know what word I would choose. And it ain't smart. It's love. Christ, praise Him, carried this burden that is unimaginable to us. And what did He do with it? Love. He loved. You could give countless examples from His life, but let me give this one. A group of Pharisees got together. They wanted to test Jesus. This was not a wise course of action, but they proceeded anyway. They asked, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. What's often not included with this story is what happened immediately afterward. While the Pharisees were there gathered together with Jesus, and I'm paraphrasing here, Jesus asked them, Whose son is the Messiah? They answered, He's the son of David. Jesus then quoted a passage from David where he referred to the Messiah as Lord. He then asked the Pharisees, If David refers to the Messiah as Lord, how can the Messiah be David's son? And I love the closing line of that chapter of Matthew. No one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. They tested Jesus. He used his knowledge and intelligence to shut them down. But what was his purpose? His purpose was love. First, love God. Second, love your neighbor. Christ's knowledge lived you. We don't speak of Christ's knowledge, though it was ever-present and limitless, and though we are fully aware of it, because Christ's knowledge did not live here. It lived here in love. Think of Christ's temptations. Christ was puffed up. He knew what the possibilities were. Every time, he chose love. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. We've talked about knowledge. What of love? As you have heard from this pulpit before, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, a church leader from a thousand years ago, had a pretty good idea about it. He suggested there were four degrees of love. The first is loving self for self's sake. That's easy enough for us to understand. Humans are selfish creatures. Though there are exceptions, people tend to love themselves, sometimes a little too much. Second, loving God for self's sake. God provides for me, and I love God because of that. Third, loving God for God's sake. This is selfless love. I see God as the one who created us, who redeemed us, who sanctifies us. I see God as the one who is a benevolent and loving God. And I love God for being that God for me and for everyone. Fourth, the fourth degree is loving self for God's sake. This for me is the hardest to understand. But the gist is, for a moment, we can be of one mind with God, seeing ourselves as God sees us, a perfect love wherein our soul is fully attended to God and God to our soul. What a beautiful notion of love 
And it fits perfectly with the first and greatest commandment. But what of the second? Loving your neighbor. I think Bernard provides a good model for this as well, and I've modified it a bit. First, again, loving self for self's sake. This is the most basic degree of love. Second, loving others for self's sake. People do things for us, and we love them for that reason. Third, loving others for others' sake. This is an advanced state of love. Loving someone else not for your own good, but for their good only, regardless of how it may impact you. Fourth and finally, loving others for God's sake, seeing others as God sees them. These advanced states of love, they require action. You can't just love another for their sake as God sees them, wish them well, and go on about your merry way. That's not how this works. We get an idea from Christ in Matthew chapter 20 about what this action may look like. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of God came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for all. So how do we love with action? We serve. We serve a cause greater than ourselves. We serve others, and not for our sake, but for their sake, for God's sake. And the one who loved the most served the most. Knowledge puffs up but love builds up. Christ had more knowledge than anyone who ever lived. He was puffed up more than anyone. But his knowledge was not here. Knowledge living here is inclusive of love, and that requires action. What action did Christ take? He taught us. He redeemed us. He gave us peace that passes all understanding. We all have our own choices to make with the knowledge that has been gifted to us. I know the people I love. I know what can make them feel happy and valued. Does that knowledge live here? Or does it live here? What will I do with that knowledge? I also know what makes the people I love vulnerable, as they with me. Does that knowledge live here? Or here? What will I do with that knowledge? I know my enemy. I know what can cut them down. Does that knowledge live here? Or here? Will I love my enemy? If so, will I love them for my sake, or for their sake, or for God's sake? I know that in Arkansas, 22% of children live in poverty. Does that knowledge live here? Or here? What will I do with that knowledge? I know that there are people outside of this church right now, within blocks, who are cold and hungry. Does that knowledge live here? Or here? What will I do with that knowledge? And the list goes on. I know this congregation. I've lived it as a kid. I've lived it as an adult. We have knowledge here. An unspeakable amount. We are puffed up. We are powerful. Where does our knowledge live? Here? Or here? What will we do with that knowledge? Will we love?